Well, welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And this week I am joined by Kaiser Rittberg Wardgren, who is the EVP and head of the business unit for hydrogen at H2 Green Steel. And anybody who has been interested in uh, the greening of steel will certainly have heard of the Bowden project and of the company. So, Kaiser, we're just incredibly grateful that you could make the time to join us and looking forward to talking to you. Hi, Alex. It's great to be on the on the podcast today. Looking forward to this talk. So um, in a moment, I'll ask you to introduce yourself, but just as a, a bit of context for the people listening, the, the purpose today, I guess, is to have a chat about how steel's overall CO2 can be reduced by as much as 95% through this, this example, this work that H2 Green Steel is pursuing. And Kaisa, perhaps you could uh, start us off by just telling us a little bit about how have you personally arrived at this moment in time? How have you come to be working on this project? And um, maybe a little update on where HD Green Steel is at, and then we'll talk more uh, about that as we go. Certainly. So, hi everyone. So, and it's very it's great to be on the podcast today. Um, I joined HD Green Steel a little bit more than a year ago now. Back then we were 25, 30 people. And today we are 150, so we are growing quickly. Um, why I ended up in this position is I spent about 15 to 17 years working in different industrial companies, mainly in metals and in chemicals and hydrogen. Um, about 10 years ago now, I was working for a Swedish uh, engineering and, and uh, material science company called uh, Sandvik. I was setting up the business unit for fuel cell components. And that was my first exposure, you could say, or first time I learned about fuel cells and how that, what that could be for the transition and how fantastic hydrogen is if it's produced in a green way. But back then, it was a lot to talk about the mobility sector and cars, etc. Uh, and we were very few believers and quite a lot of haters out there. Uh, some years later, I got an opportunity to work for Yara International, uh, running uh, their innovation team. And Yara International is a large fertilizer company. They do other things as well, but the main product is, is fertilizer. And we were looking a lot into, for, for the upstream part, how we could find a green way for, for producing hydrogen, and basically to go back to electrolysis. Um, and when I worked there, I realized that hydrogen is actually not really about mobility as of today it, it is about the industry it is about how we can transform some of the hardest to abate industries and it's not only about that it's actually about the, like shipping and uh, fuels for for hard to abate sectors so it's then i learned that this is such a fantastic and fascinating ecosystem uh, everywhere it's like the core of that is green hydrogen. Um, so then I, I spent some other years working as a, um, in, in other industrial companies. And then I got the question last summer if I wanted to be responsible of the hydrogen division at H2 Green Steel, where kind of the metal part is combined with the hydrogen part. And I, I mean, it was just completely the right moment for me and the right assignment. So that's why I why I said yes. Um, but another dimension to this is also, I have realized, I would say, especially in the last 10 years, that I'm really dri driven by higher purpose. Um, I have young kids. I have a, a son of four 
and a daughter of seven. And I do like to work a lot, but I want to be able to tell them that when I'm not with them, I'm spending my time on, on creating a better world for them. Um, so that's basically uh, another really strong, strong driving force for me to be part of, of creating something that is better for the generations to come. I want to tell them, at least I tried, right? I think it's interesting how many of our clients and the people that we connect to that quite a lot of them either on the record or off the record mm -hmm. would say that it is their children or their grandchildren sometimes that have pushed their decision to engage in this in this kind of work. So um yeah interesting to see how different drivers whether it's like those really personal connections or, or other can can make people step up to the challenge so it really interesting to have that personal reflection as well as the professional reflection on how you got here so now just set the scene about h2 green steel itself and we, we will come back to the the actual core project uh, a little later on but tell us about the business and, and where it's at at the moment mm. so h2 green steel was officially launched in, was it February last year in 2021? Uh, and our founders is, is Vargas. Uh, Vargas is, um, could call them an investment company, but they are really a company who is enabling great ideas from, from a white piece of paper. Uh, they have uh, founded First Polarium, which is a battery storage company, now a unicorn. They have founded Northvolt, which is a, a large battery cell producer uh, with a gigafactory up in the north of Sweden. And you could say as a consequence of that, they also realized the importance of decarbonizing the steel industry. So that's why they founded us. So that's the starting point. So our founders and our owners, they have a true interest in, in developing commercial business that also contributes to, to the sustainability part, you could say, of the agenda. Uh, our purpose is to decarbonize hard to abate industries. And we start with steel. That's not why we stop. Uh, why we start with steel is that it's, if, if we are successful in that industry, it has a huge impact. Because today, uh, the steel industry accounts for about 8% of global CO2 emissions, 28, 30% of industrial emissions. So meaning we will have a huge impact uh, if and when we are successful. Another part of why we start with steel is that technology is ready. It's there. It's um, uh, tested in a smaller scale setup. We're very much inspired by another Swe uh, Swedish uh, venture, uh, Hybrid, which is a consortium between Vattenfall, LKAB, and SSAB. And they have basically proven that it is possible. But our view and our founders' view is that the world doesn't need another pilot. It needs large scale, it needs it now. So that's why we start with steel uh, and um, we start now. Why we build up in the north of Sweden in Budan is because um, that's where you have, you could say, an abundance of, of green electricity. Um, you have a lot of hydropower up there. You have the possibility to build out wind uh, windmills and you have not that many people living there. So it's, it's an excellent place for a venture that requires about 10 to 15 terawatt hours of green electricity base load. Um, we are right now in our uh, construction phase of that project. So we ha have a ground preparation ongoing on a site which is 300 hectares. It's a huge area. 
we, we got our permissibility permit, uh, you could call it construction permit, uh, this summer, which enables us to, to start the ground prep. Uh, we have also uh, recently announced our uh, debt financing. So to make this venture happen, the first project, we need about 5 billion euro. Um, one third of that uh, is equity, one, uh, two thirds is debt financing. And we announced our debt financing structure uh, about two weeks ago. So there's a consortium of different banks, um, financial institutions, uh, etc. that is supporting us. So we normally get this question, is there money, what's the appetite now considering then what's going on in the world and all uncertainty. But we do see for our type of project, there is money available and there's a big interest to support us. We're going to talk in a moment about this kind of very uh, big focus that the company has on a value chain wide approach. And I'm sure that's part of the reason why mm. finances are also stepping up so mm. eagerly to the project. But let me just uh, ask you a question about that great quote that you said, um, the world doesn't need another pilot. Because I remember when we had our prep chat, you you said that, and it was just such a striking, striking statement. What what does it mean when that is the guiding principle of a business? Like how is how is what you're doing now different than if you were tiptoeing in with a pilot like what does it mean to the company in terms of its resources its structure it's you know tell us a little bit about that I, I would say that the main difference is that when you do a pilot you don't need to have a bankable case in the sense that you can have subsidies you can do it on the balance sheet if you have any we don't really have a balance sheet but it's it's a very different ball game but if you want to go to financial institutions and also this very skilled investors that we are aiming for, they want to see the case. They want to see how to make it work. They want to see the team. They want to see the design. They want to see everything. And you have to prove that you have thought about that. So I think that's the biggest difference um, if you are investing 10 million euro or 5 billion euro, that how you are scrutinized and that you have to show that you have thought about all these risks that they are, are seeing, because it is really about risk mitigation. Um, yeah, so I, I would say that's the biggest part. And that's also why there's, if you are into the hydrogen space, um, there's so many initiatives, there's so many announcements, but most of them are, are actually missing the large offtake. And that's what we bring, right? It sounds very simple, um, but we bring a huge offtaker uh, for a huge hydrogen plant and that's why we and 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 then also so the the iron is offtake for the hydrogen and the steel is offtake for for the iron and then we can bring a product to the market that the automotive industry the white goods industry construction understand and they know the value of that product and they know how much they can charge for a green product to their customers basically the consumers and then we know the value of steel. We know how much, what is the value then of iron? And then we also know what can we afford in terms of hygiene. So it's really about not only understand the technology here, it's, it's about the value chain. It's about um, the commercial model and how to make it fly financially. Okay, well, let's, um, let's have a look at the project then. So you, you've given us the scope of it. We understand geographically where it is. What's the kind of overall ambition in terms of output 
And you, you mentioned that you're in the construction phase. When do you anticipate things are going to be 100% up and running, chugging away every day? What's the, what's the timeline to that? Yeah, so uh, to give you some background to that question, I think it's good to explain a bit more what we are actually building. So um, we are, like I said, building hydrogen factory, an iron factory, you could say, and a steel mill. Um, if we start then with um, what is central point of decarbonization here, which is actually the iron part. So today, if you go into a traditional steel mill, how you produce iron uh, and steel is that you take iron ore from a mine, you bring that to a blast furnace, you heat it up with uh, carbon, you could say, or cooking coal. Um, that releases, uh, or it basically connects the oxygen that you have in the iron ore to carbon and you emit CO2. And that's the main problem from a polluting or from an emission point of view um, about the steel industry, it's the iron making part. So what you can do instead is to use another um, type of, of equipment, which is a direct, direct reduction uh, tower. And um, by using green hydrogen, or actually hydrogen, instead of, of uh, carbon, you are connecting the oxygen in the iron ore to hydrogen instead. That make then the byproduct of, of uh, water. So that is our ambition, and that is what we're going to do. Uh, in order to do that, you need about 800 megawatt of electrolysis. Um, to feed 24-7. You need to avoid storage because as of today, and we are building now, storage is too expensive. And that's why we are in a region where you have baseload power, so we don't actually need a storage. So that's like the upstream part. And then if you go uh, to the steel mill, uh, in the steel mill, we, we will have an electric arc furnace. The electric arc furnace will be charged partly with virgin iron, coming from the iron factory, uh, integrated directly. And we will also have a mix of, of scrap. So um, depending on the product you produce, you will have different charge mix, you could say, in the electric arc furnace. And back to your question, when are we coming live? So we will start by, because the steel mill has a shorter lead time than the iron factory or the DRI factory and the hydrogen plant. So we will start to, to commission the steel plant 2025. And that will be in the beginning with scrap, um, just to get it going. And then we will gradually uh, include virgin iron, uh, when that part of the factory is ready, which is um, yeah, end of 25-ish, um, I would say. Okay, and then in terms of like the overall end output, what, what kind of volume of green steel are you anticipating that you'll be producing once it's all, all in flow, everything's integrated? Mm. So we have two phases. So phase one, then coming live in 2025, uh, where we will have 2.1 million tonne of iron that will then part of that will feed into the steel mill uh, with the output of 2.5 million ton of steel, where a share of that is, is actually coming from scrap. So it's, it's a mix. That means that for the first years, we will have an overcapacity on the iron making part 
so we could also sell green iron to other steel mills around the world who would like to decarbonize um, the blast furnaces or they want to use it in the electric cart furnace. Um, so 2.5 million ton of steel coming out plus uh, somewhere around 500,000 uh, ton of green iron. In our second phase, and then we're talking probably 28 to 29, uh, our ambition is to be with between 4.5 to 5 million ton of steel. Uh, it depends a bit uh, on what type of products that we will produce. Um, and then, you, then we would use the majority of our iron to the steel mill. So then we will not have a, a big volume of, of green iron available anymore. So then it's, 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 you could say, purely a, a steel, steel mill. All hydrogen will be consumed by uh, the iron making part. So it's not like, uh, in, at least before 2030, that we envision that the hydrogen plant we build now would distribute hydrogen to other parts in the region. It's, it's really dedicated to the iron making. And that's where we see we can have a business case today. I think what's really striking when you talk through that is I'm sure there are people listening who are working with an asset base in steel or in other industries that's been in place for you know decades, if not longer. What I mean, I'm sure there's clearly there are massive pros to creating a green steel project when you have no legacy business, but there are also challenges, right? So how how has the lack, you know, not having that legacy business, how has that change the approach that you and your team have taken to this would you say i mean there are there are so many challenges in our project there's every week something new coming up um but many of them i would say would be the same for an incumbent steel mill as well um but but for instance from the beginning it's of course to have the permit in place that's a very big and cumbersome process to understand what technology to do, decide etc cetera, etc cetera. What is really core in everything we do, and it, it's very much driven also by the model that Northvolt has, is to listen to the customer, find the customers who wants to have a green product, discuss with them and their willingness to pay, explain to them what it costs, and find an offtake agreement or a customer agreement for a certain volume. And that is what we need to finance or to show to the banks that we have a business that they would like to finance. Obviously, if you are an incumbent player, you already have your customer contacts and then they know you can produce the product. So you wouldn't have that the same challenge because then, I mean, the banks, if, if they even would go to the banks for this, they would just assume that they can produce the same product. It's just another process upstream how, how to make it happen. So I would say that is uh, definitely it has been a challenge, but now I think we have proven, I mean, we have pre-sold 1.5 million ton out of the first 2.5 million at the premium and take or pay agreement. So it's, I think we have proven that it is possible, but that is definitely a challenge when you're coming as a, as a new company. Um, on the more the positive side or whatever you want to call it is, I do feel that the people we have attracted to join us um, are quite different from, from what I have experienced in my previous industrial jobs. I mean, our CEO and the management team, we are very much focused on diversity and we are trying to 
keep a, a very tight eye on, on I mean, 50 50 is our ambition for, for gender um, in, in the company. It is difficult on the construction side, I have to say. Uh, anyone, uh, any woman who is in construction would like to work with us, let us know. It's just really, really hard to, to find. But um, if we disregard the construction part, I, I do see that we have a much better balance than what I've seen in other companies. And it's because we believe it makes a difference. We need to, to create a company that is equally interesting for a man or a woman or someone who is strong or a little bit smaller, or, you know, it's, it is, should be a place uh, with a lot of diversity. It's also, we are focusing a lot of diversity on on, on nationality and culture and where people come from, because what we are building, we have a lot of steel competence in Sweden, I have to say. So there's a lot of skilled um, steel people that we can recruit. But for the specific process that we are building, that is much more common in the US. So for our steel mill now, uh, to, for the engineering and also to, to get it going, we have um, a team from the US. In terms of our iron making part, the DRI is very common in the Middle East. So we have recruited uh, quite a few people uh, that have been working in, in the Middle East for like 20 years. Uh, and they bring their own teams, you could say. Um, we have on the hydrogen side, it's just really hard to find people. I mean, nobody's obviously built an 800 megawatt plant before. But we are, I mean, anywhere in the world where we can find people with relevant competence, um, we are making sure that we find a way to get them here. Because, and just an example there, I can say there is one excellent engineer in our hydrogen technology team. Um, we found her and she, she lives in India. And she told us during the interview um, process that she's pregnant uh, very early. And we were like, okay, but, uh, we arrange for you to work from India, um, you give birth, and then when you're ready, we move your family. Because that, that's at that level you have to be to find the best people. And we need the best people to make this happen. So we probably have somewhere around 20 to 30 different nationalities already in the team. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the kind of deficit, or it's not so much a deficit, it's not the right word, but the, the talent question around green hydrogen, I feel, is one that a lot of companies are not yet quite getting their hands around but it uh, it's going to hit isn't it especially as other companies scale what are currently pilots into mm. full-scale uh, situations um it, i think it'll be interesting to see the you know how, how industry responds like where do we find those people what kind of premium gets placed on those roles um, but by being at scale now you're obviously ahead of that curve yeah and it's also very much to think about potential to recruit on potential, to recruit people with relevant background, but not necessarily experience in green hydrogen production, because there are very few, but really a relevant background with similar challenges uh, and recruit on potential and personality. Well, that uh, maybe kind of feeds a bit into the kind of next area of discussion. So when you and I connected about doing this, one of the points you're making about H2 Green Steel is this is not just about setting up this one facility, although as we're hearing, it's really three facilities uh, fully integrated. It's not just about that, but that there is a kind of a conceptual way that the group looks at Green Steel, which is more about a real rethink around the value chain of hydrogen and steel. 
can you you know I, I mean I'm, I feel like that could have been a podcast in and of its own right so as much as possible can you uh, kind of give a bit of clarity to that what what does it mean to say that we need to rethink the value chain around hydrogen or rethink the value chain around steel and what would that reimagined value chain look like if you've got everything ideally you know in place yeah no it's it's a very good good question so if you rewind a bit and look into the the legacy part of the industry where the industry is coming for so you you can see that big steel mills are are located close to the customer base close to where you can have access to coal or natural gas um, because that was the drivers before if you look into green steel if you look into um, the new world of energy you could say you have to find spots in the world with if and now if we talk steel because when you produce steel or iron you need 24 7 production then you need to look into places if you want to have a cost efficient model where you have base load power base load power if you are into fossil free it's either nuclear or it's hydropower we are into renewable power and that means hydropower that brings you to certain places in the world where not necessarily the steel mills are today but in these places, and there are a few, um, you actually also have pretty good access to high-grade iron ore. So by, by having access to uh, the two most important inputs, you could say, when producing iron or green iron, uh, you can create the upstream part of the value chain in one place, so green hydrogen, green iron, and iron converted then, so DRI converted then into a hot bricketed product, which is a, called HBI. That is a product that you can distribute globally. So it's in one way you could see by doing this, you could export energy and minerals from certain places in the world to where you have the downstream facilities to where you have the customer base. So from a incumbent or current steel mill point of view that means that you should protect and you can really continue to run your downstream activities such as um, um, yeah, rolling and uh, gavelinizing all of that if you add an electric arc furnace and then you buy scrap and you buy hbi but that means that you need to decommission your blast furnace and it also means that you should not build your own iron making next to your current plant so why shouldn't you do that? It's because when you do this kind of iron production, I, I mentioned it before, you need 10 to yeah, around 10 terawatt hours of green electrons at base load. To find that in Germany or the Netherlands or so, that's going to be very challenging. And also to see, you, it's not just that, just if you look at how much renewables you would need to build out to make that happen, and if we disregard the fact of the base load, but let's say that you could do it on wind or solar, it's, it's huge. And then you would say that all of that would go to the steel industry. That's also probably not that likely, right? So instead of having that fight, I really hope that the steel industry can reconsider, can think about what if we no longer would actually do iron in Germany, Netherlands, or Japan, or what have you. We would instead make sure to invest in companies who can do that in locations where it makes sense. 
so really re-envisaging not just who's involved in which parts of the value chain but also uh, you kind of imagine a map being redrawn of, of what is being shipped where and how uh, yeah. so it's got quite big connotations hasn't it kind of reimagining on that scale yeah and it's really about thinking about what do you want to distribute do you want to because right now there's a lot of initiatives where you would import green hydrogen like from australia from canada maybe from the us now with inflation reduction act but if you really do the math it's actually at least from our analysis it's more cost efficient to then produce ammonia instead let's say in in australia ship that to europe crack it back to hydrogen and then put it in the plant i mean it's very expensive it's very expensive to transport green hydrogen or to transport hydrogen so if you then would look at what could i transport instead that is more efficient and that is is um iron or i mean for the shipping industry, of course, you look into methanol um, and things like that. So we we kind of started this conversation by finding out about the Bowdoin project. We've talked about the idea of the world not needing another pilot. We've talked about the rethink that could come in, in global value chains around this. I, I know that you're not only thinking about this project in Bowdoin. Your ambition is for a you know perhaps a, a global portfolio of similar projects so so what's next if you were thinking about either partnerships that you're looking at like not necessarily the individuals although we'd love to know those company names but what types of partnerships are going to be coming online do you think and what types of projects do you see maybe being the kind of subsequent subsequent ones that you would be pursuing once Bowdoin's up and running? Yeah, I mean, I, in terms of partnerships, um, we do see that there is a new kind of partnerships that are needed. Um, there is no company who can understand at the level you need uh, everything from how to produce green power to setting up uh, and running a hydrogen factory, running a DRI factory in a steel mill. Um, you need to have new partnerships models where you have a new level of transparency into return, profitability, uh, who is doing what, ownership structures, JV structures, and things like that. So otherwise, it will not fly. And that's why in our first project outside of, of Budan is together with Iberdrola on the Iberian Peninsula, where they will, uh, or their contribution to the project is they are one of the best in the world on renewable energy um, development, so building wind and solar, uh, and also operating it. So we have a partnership with them there where they are doing the renewable side. We have a joint venture on the hydrogen part, and then we are the one developing and running uh, the DRI uh, and potentially steel side. So that's our second project, uh, because we do believe that in Europe, there are two places uh, in the future where you can have low cost green hydrogen production, and that's in the north, uh, where we are, and in the south. Our third project uh, that we announced some weeks ago is uh, in Brazil, together with Hydro uh, Havran. It's a Norwegian, it's a hydrogen part of the Norwegian Aluminium and Energy Company, Norsk Hydro, or Norsk Hydro. Uh, so we announced the partnership. We are um, currently in a pre-feasibility phase uh, where we are looking into different site possibilities in Brazil to produce large-scale green hydrogen 
uh, iron and potentially steel. Uh, Brazil is excellent from a, a green baseload point of view and also possibility to build out solar and wind. And they also have great reserves of high-grade iron ore. So that's our third project that we have announced. And we have especially one more that is not announced yet that I can't talk about, but it's also really now in the process of ring fencing one of the best power positions in the world where you where you can have access to huge amount of green based on power so that's really our guiding star i would say um, if oil and gas companies they are in many ways talking about blue hydrogen and how to use gas in the current locations but we are really trying to find the best electricity nodes in the world Wow, it's a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot to balance and uh, really fascinating to talk to you at this point in H2's development. I feel like in a year's time, there's going to be a dozen projects in motion and, and a, a lot more to discuss. But um, what, what's your, what would you say your kind of closing call to action is? You've mentioned this need for recruitment on a really diverse level. What, what else, if they, you're imagining the listeners out there, whether they're in finance, engineering, industry, what, what else would you say is your main call to action as we wrap up? What is frustrating for when I when I'm in, in different uh, like um, conferences and talks about hydrogen, it's like there are so many people still who are just surfing on the surface. There's so much talk, so many initiatives, which is great, but very few really understand the details. So my call to action is a bit to dig into the details, understand what it is. Stop saying that green hydrogen will cost $1 or $150 in 2030, because I, maybe I have to eat this one up, but it's no way where we are right now, considering how long time it takes to develop new technology um, and grid and renewable, et cetera, et cetera. So that is one part. Another part is, is also, be more transparent and open and, and be willing to discuss new business models and new value chain setups. Don't just try to protect what you have today, but think about how you can protect to, to not lose it all. And, and really think into a new type of partnership and value chain to make that happen. I mean, like an example, yes, our main product is green steel, but we are also willing to sell green iron to steel mills who would like to transition because we are located in one of the best places in the world to make that happen. So it means in one way we help other steel players to have the green product on the market quicker, but honestly, that's what the world needs. We need them to, if they can reduce some CO2 emissions now, we, it's our responsibility to, to offer that help. Well, if you don't get some uh, requests for contacts based on those call to actions, I, I don't know what, what would spur people to action, but thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, partly for taking the time, just even just diving into that project, it has immense value. But I think it's always good for all of us to be spurred on and provoked a bit with this, this need for a, a real rethink about global systems around industries, not just tinkering around the edges of operational or process factors and I think mm. you've laid that out incredibly well so thank you Kaisa really appreciate the time no but thanks a lot Alex it was a pleasure talking to you many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast 
We work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.